First Peter chapter two, verse eleven to seventeen. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, I remember biking in the bike lane in the city and passing food delivery people. And having compassionate thoughts about these hardworking individuals who all day long are on the bike in the rain, in the snow, in the cold, having to pedal and pedal and pedal, in order to bring a measure of convenience to us. And and with sympathy, when when the、um, electric bike first came out, I remember thinking, boy, I'd like to buy bikes for some of these delivery people, just to make their lives a little bit easier. Uh, and then all the restaurants started buying electronic bikes for their delivery people, and I started to have the opposite thoughts as these bikes would be coming the opposite direction in the bike lane against me at thirty miles an hour,、um, and all of a sudden the、uh, the the flood of these high speed delivery people became risky and threatening, and so now everything has become electronic. So there are these electronic scooters. So they're not motorized scooters, although they look exactly and function exactly like motor scooters. But if you bike over any of the bridges, often there are these somewhat narrow bike lanes that need to be shared with people who are walking, with people who are running, with people who are biking. And now you'll have a motorized scooter that's quite large coming as fast as the cars in the traffic lane over the bridge, and it's it's a bit、uh, it seems a bit dangerous. It, it causes a, a bit of concern. So this new thing has been in. Introduced into the old system of bike lanes, and all of a sudden now you have these bikes that are faster than ever.、Uh, and what do we do with it? Now, today we are starting back into our sermon series in First Peter. If you were with us in the fall, from September through November, we sort of slowly went through the first chapter and a half of the New Testament letter、uh, called First Peter. It's the first of two letters attributed to Peter in the New Testament. And the theme has been spiritual vitality.、Uh, we were looking at this idea that that Peter is trying to say God has done something, not just to make happiness possible, or to improve your life, or to give you new morality or new rules, but God has done something to actually bring life into you that 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 should、uh, bring a certain vitality. So, so for example. Uh, one of the images we get, it's like being reborn. It says 
you've been born again um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the dead, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus creates a new possibility, not an idea, but a new, a new reality that, um, that we are, could be made new and that this hope is a living hope that then we bring with us into the world. And one of the questions that then comes up is, but how do we then live in the world? So first Peter describes those who, who believe and share that hope and start to experience it as aliens, as exiles. We, we remain in the world, but our relationship to the world has changed. In the fall, my focus was on us as individuals. How do we start to experience that renewal? But now we're moving into a section in this book uh, that Peter writes, where he's talking about us in relationship to the structures of society. What does it mean to be a citizen under the government? What does it mean to be an employee or a worker? What does it mean to be in an institution like the family? And so in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be talking about those things, but it's a little bit like, so here's why I was talking about the bikes. People made new who now belong, but don't belong going back into the structures. How do you function? What, what do you do with an electric bike? Do you just get in the bike lane? You're now as fast as the cars because the, the speed limit is 25 miles an hour for them. You're not a car. But you're not quite a bike. How do you function figuring that out? So as Christians, or for those who are seeking to draw near to God to experience this living hope, we start to experience change, but we live in a world that may not have changed, or we don't see the change, or is not changing at the same rate. Now, the, the opportunity is, if, if renewed people can go back into the world, can we bring that renewal? But how do we do it? with the connections, but also the disconnections. <laughs> um, so over the upcoming weeks, that's what we're going to look at. What does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be an employee or a boss? What does it mean to be a husband or a wife or in a family? Uh, those are the questions we're going to get into as we move forward. And so what I want to do today, before I jump in, so that we're going to look at the same passage next week and focus on the question of citizenship, where it says, honor the emperor. What does it mean to be um, a citizen of a country? Uh, I'm going to focus on that next week. Today, what I want to do is lay down a bit of a foundation that we need to have with us as we step into all of these things, because there are some every section has something that will challenge us in a way that uh, some of the challenges will be good, but some of the challenges will wonder, is the Bible just out of date? How do we make sense of this? And so I want to bring us back into 1 Peter with uh, uh, some, some basic ideas that we will have to work out into the spe specific context that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. And so today I want to talk about three lessons that we can draw out of today's passage, a transitional passage where, where, where we move from what God is doing and inviting us as individuals into, to now God forming a community that exists in the world. Uh, this passage um, is a little bit of a hinge, and so then I could draw out some of the things that, we've been, that we had been talking about, and that will apply. Um, and so the basic idea is our new relationship with God changes us, and it changes our relationship to the world, but it becomes the anchor for that, and we now relate to the world out of that new identity, that new life, that new way of being. And, you know, we could talk about how much do we expect that we change the world? How much do we have to protect ourselves from being affected by the world? All those sorts of questions that Christians deal with. Uh, but for today, I want to lay down three specific uh, ideas that we're going to take with us. The first is this. 
we are encouraged to abstain in order to do good. So that's the idea, abstain in order to do good. So sometimes um, people are aware that in any religious life, including Christianity or any ethical or moral life or any program for change, there are certain things that you have to not do. Sometimes we get the perspective or the, uh, the we, we wind up functioning as though Christianity is mostly about what you shouldn't do. It's a list of rules. Here are the things you want to do and you shouldn't do them. And that's not the orientation. The thing is, here are all the good and wonderful things that you now should do. But in trying to do them, you're going to find that it's not easy to do good and to live a vibrant life. But there are issues that we'll need to deal with. And therefore, in order to do good, in order to live good lives, it requires abstaining. And so uh, we see in verse 11 that the language of abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, the distinction here is not physical and material, because as we'll see, the passions of the flesh, some of them are physical, some of them are not. But, but, the, um, but the, it's, it's not that the, the soul, and it's not body and soul, but, but the passions of the flesh are talking about the effects of corruption in us. Now, all of us will recognize certain desires, no matter what our moral ethical system is, certain desires that we just know are problematic whether it's, it's our own ideals or society's ideals or the ideals of a teacher like Jesus or some other uh, influential person. All of us will recognize lust, greed, uh, 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 a thirst for vengeance or various things that we can see our emotional lives or desires. There are things at work in us that we shouldn't act on. They're harmful. The more complicated thing is Jesus comes and fine tunes what it means to really be good he really exposes how deep and how, how wide the corruption in us is because yes, there are bad things that we want. We want to do terrible things, but even the good things that we want could become problems in our lives. So I'll take one example. Greed is a problem. When you say, you know what? I so want money. I so much want to conquer. I, I want to own things that I'm willing to, to harm people. I'm willing to lie. We can maybe obviously recognize that as a problem, but um, in modern society, we function with currency, some form of money or, so, or something like that, and to therefore need to earn money and to desire to earn enough money um, that you could have a decent life, a comfortable life, and even to want above just basic subsistence, but to, to want to enjoy yourself. Is that sinful? And we would say no. So greed is a problem. But wanting to earn money and have a decent life so you can share and so you can eat well uh, and not necessarily have a lavish lifestyle, but whatever we define as reasonable. But the vulnerability even there. So let's say you would say, you know, okay, there's always the possibility greed is at work and we're not seeing it. That's part of the nature of, of sin, that it blinds us. Greed could blind us. But let's say the best case scenario, you know, the warnings about money. Jesus has very clear warnings because of the temptation to greed, the temptation to love money. But we can't withdraw from having to function in, in our economy. And is there a healthy way for it? Well, we find sometimes that we're not driven by greed. It's not that we want to have a billion dollars. It's not that we want to have this lavish lifestyle. But functionally, our ultimate hope and trust winds up where in the hierarchy of our desires and perceived needs, money plays a higher role than even for those of us who have faith 
than faith in our own system. So, so you cannot be a Christian and not necessarily be greedy, but money's playing a certain role in your life. But you could also be a Christian and say, I believe God, I believe Christianity is true. And it's not that I'm greedy, but at the end of the day, my hope is that if I have enough money, I'll have whatever it is that I want. I, I, I could have a certain measure of control over my life or a certain safety and protection or certain opportunities for pleasure. And therefore, greed is a real problem. And we may feel like we're, we're navigating past it, but simply um, wanting a good life, we may find that that with some examination, with some testing, it's not simply that we want good, but, but that our, our, our primary hope is in that. And therefore, Christianity winds up having little influence. And so there's a disconnect between, we, we talk on Sunday about all these things that we believe, and during the week, they don't work in any way in our lives. And it's because sometimes the corruption comes in just to to ruin something good in your life. And I'm giving one example of money, but it could be lots of things about your own ambition, your own entertainment, your own relationships, lots of good things that under closer inspection, we realize, you know, this, this has become uh, uh, something that I have too much of a desire for, too much hope, and it's functioning actually in a religious way. I'm ultimately serving, getting my identity from, hoping in this other thing. And, and that's the, the nature of complexity. So when it says abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, it's really once you get a vision for goodness, and that's what uh, First Peter's describing, this new birth, this new life, once you taste what goodness is like and the possibility of it, you should want more of it. And the problem for those uh, who want to excel in that is you realize the more you want to be good, the more you want to do good, the more you want to experience good. There's always something in us, or because it's true of all people, as people organize and create institutions and societies, there's always something about the way we engage the world that seems to push against it, that seems to tear it down. It feels like all of a sudden, I just want to do good. And now that's really hard. Why does it feel like a fight? Why does it feel like there's a war? And so something that we all need to grapple with is, do we believe that goodness has its own reward? Do we desire more of it? As we do, we find that then we become more in tune with just how troubled we are as people. There's a poem uh, written by the, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, um, and I'm just going to read a, a, a couple of stanzas from it. It's called We Are Many, and he's reflecting on his own identity, me. <laughs> Uh, but the title is interesting because he, he talks about a we that, that as he gets to know himself, he's seeing that under the surface of who he is, there's a lot of complex things happening. And so I'm just going to read a couple of stanzas to give you an idea. He says, of the many men whom I am, whom we are, I cannot settle on a single one. They are lost to me under the cover of clothing. They have departed for another city. When everything seems to be set to show me off as a man of intelligence, the fool I keep concealed on my person takes over my talk and occupies my mouth. On other occasions, I am dozing in the midst of people of some distinction. And when I summon my courageous self, a coward completely unknown to me swaddles my poor skeleton in a thousand tiny reservations. He goes on to talk about 
here's who he is, here's who he wants to be. And in every situation, he finds himself um, grappling with some new manifestation of who he is under the surface, the, the person that he tries to keep covered up. And it's a vivid description where, where at the end of the poem, he winds up saying, I feel not like a person, but, but like a geography that, that, that instead of getting to know me, you need a map for all these various things that I am. In our effort to do good, to be good, we find that under the surface, oh, what we try to cover up, there are all these um, things. And so, so verse 15 says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. And here we are saying, we don't want to be foolish. We don't want to live in ignorance, but we want to actually know what's good and we want to do what's good and we want to live in light of what's good. Um, but it's as you try it that you realize it feels like we're waging a war within our soul. Why is it that I have these, um, uh, why do I have desires that go in two different directions? I truly want what's good, but I, but I also want what's evil. <laughs> I want what's good, but I also want to take it in a direction that's a little bit self-serving. And so um, in order to do good, um, when we think about what does God have of us, what is his will? Well, his will is that we would not give into folly. Um, but at the end of the day, the vision is that good will have the last word. Folly and ignorance will be silenced. Right now, it doesn't seem like good is effective, but have enough confidence in God's ways that if you do them, they will be fruitful, whether or not they seem to be working, whether or not you seem to, to have full buy-in on it. It's saying abstain from those passions which are waging war against your flesh. Do what is right. And at the end of the day, the last word will be vindication. You will see that God's ways are right. But um, the issue here is not what are the things God doesn't want me to do, but to learn what are the things God does want me to do? And how do I do them with excitement and with joy? And as you're doing that, you're going to realize part of the discipline of growing in grace requires abstaining, requires something that feels like you're fighting a bit of a war to say, I want to do good. And now here's something that would, would destroy it, that would pull me away, that would ruin it. And part of that discipline is, to, is the goal is not to have a life of abstinence. The goal is to have a life of fullness and goodness. To live out that life will require uh, the kind of discipline to say, I'm going to need to experience restraint. I'm going to need to learn what God wills, to learn what good is. And then to, uh, while I engage this not yet changed world as a not fully changed person, I'm going to have to abstain. So that's one of the things that we're going to see that we need to take into our relationship as citizens, as uh, family members, as employees or employers uh, that we'll take with us. Here's the second idea, principle that I'm going to talk about today. Aim for genuine freedom. That's an important value in this passage. And that's something that we need to have as a goal to say, if the gospel sets me free, as I go back into the world Will my relationship with God keep me free or will I get caught up uh, and get pulled back down? So you aim for genuine freedom. And now I'm talking about genuine freedom because that's the issue here is that um, uh, we, there's uh, various promises of freedom, but we are told not to, um, not to fall for some of the false promises. So um, let me read to you verse 16. It says, live as people who are free not using your freedom 
as a cover-up for evil. So, so here's a, a reflection question. If you were free to do whatever you would want to do, what would you do? As you imagine your, your fantasy world, if you were to spend a couple of days dreaming, I could do whatever I want and, and not afraid of being punished, not afraid of being shamed, not afraid of being rejected, what would you do? And if you take enough time to think through that, at some point you would find your dreams and aspirations probably have a lot of advancing yourself that ultimately requires the expense of others to some degree. That even our good desires um, are so self-focused that we're probably willing to have other people have to make sacrifices for ourselves. And so um, how do we become a people? How do we come together as citizens, as employees, as families, as, as a church in a way that maintains genuine freedom if me getting what I want requires your having to give up what you want? See, that's this, this deep problem. Um, do we live as people who are free? So I, I, uh, I did watch the Squid Games just because a pastor gives an example and admits to having done something. That doesn't mean I'm necessarily recommending. It was quite a, a sobering TV show filled with terrible violence. And therefore, I don't know that it's necessarily recommendable. Not, not necessarily sure I should have seen it. Um, but what it does do is it creates the um, it's a it's a case study in depravity. Um, so if you're not familiar with the with the show, uh, there are these games that these people are assembled to play, and they wind up being highly competitive, but high cost, very violent. Those who, you, you don't win or lose the game uh, simply in terms of being declared a winner or a loser. You, you either live or you die. And what's interesting about the show is you see um, the human instinct to come together. And, and yet some of that coming together is pragmatic. We need to come together in order to create an allegiance against other people that are coming together. So the basis of our coming together is not necessarily virtuous, but protective. Um, but within it, in the early episodes, you see these examples of virtue of people who are taking risks for themselves for the sake of others, people who are helping others, though they didn't need to. Uh, but as the show goes on, and as things get more competitive and more intense, you find that desperate people, competitive people, fearful people, people who want to live, when really pressed, start to turn against one another. The virtuous things become fewer and fewer, and therefore the very sacred commitments of husband and wife and friends and these various things, there's this turning against one another. It really is a, a case study in depravity. What happens when, when the worst of society shows up? What it squeezes us uh, to do the worst things. Um, in verse 16, where it says, live as people who are, who are free, there's a hint at one of the things that we're doing in order to try to deal, or the reality is not deal, with the inability to get rid of these things that we need to be abstaining from. Because what we desire, once we've tasted goodness, is to have full goodness and to get rid of evil in the world, to get rid of evil in our hearts, and whatever forms it manifests itself. And yet we can't. The more we try to do good, the more we see in ourselves. The more we try to change the world, we see that the world doesn't want to change. And how do we deal with it? One of the ways is some kind of covering it up. And so this says, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. So if we were truly set free to do whatever we would want, um, 
we would find that what we want still requires a certain amount of cover-up. And so how is covering functioning in your life? Well, in various forms, it's the excuses we make. It's the blame we put on others. It's the lies that we tell. It's the things we ignore. If evil can't go away, if we can't deal with it by getting rid of it, we deal with it by not dealing with it, by pretending it's not there, by looking the other way, by, by saying it's them, it's you, it's not me, or by making excuses for it, it's me, but it wouldn't normally be me. And, and frankly, apart from the gospel, I, I don't know what better we can do, um, but that's not good. <laughs> that's not a good solution. I remember years ago when my kids were very young, and my wife and I were just overwhelmed with exhaustion and life was good and we were glad for all of the goodness. But to be honest, we were not keeping on top of the, the basic tasks of life. And so we lived in this terrible mess. And I remember one night that we were going to be having a group of people over and, you know, you want to straighten up. And, and then the cleaning plan, when you've got, you know, a crying two-year-old and, and, a, and a four-year-old who really wants you to be, in, you know, going with them and you've got a half hour before people are showing up is not straightening up, but quickly taking everything and throwing it into a room and then closing the door. That's how we cleaned up. So we're sitting there and we had eight or nine people over and there was this one woman who had an infant and she wasn't there. And I remember saying, hey, where's this person? And somebody said, oh, she needed to nurse. So she went into the bedroom and immediately fear popped up in my mind that, that my thought was, what was she doing? And, and, and actually in, in reflection, I think I would have had a moral crisis if she would have said, hey, I need a private place to go, because <laughs> uh, then I would have needed to, to make the decision, what do I do about the bedroom? But there it was. She went into the room that was, exp that was hiding the reality that we did not have our lives together. Um, and I thought, I hope she's nursing in the dark in there. Um, so, so, so what would I have done if she had asked? Well, one temptation would have been hey, don't you have a blanket or something? We won't look. Why don't you stay out here? Why don't you cover it up that way? Oh, no, that, I can't ask that. And then uh, what kind of excuses would I make? Oh, you know, it's been a really busy week. I would have felt in some ways there needed to be some, if you're going to open that door and see what's in there, you can't just go in there and, and let the room speak for itself. I would want to cover it up somehow. I would want to explain it. I would want to apologize. Maybe, you know, we're a bit tired, exhausted. I'm sorry you have to see that. But somehow, in our inability to deal with that, now the door opens. And the only way that I can deal with it is in some way trying to, trying to cover for it. And, and how much are we managing in our lives these areas where, where we're hoping something's not going to get in and, and our fears are because we have a friendship and that friend wants to get to know us, but intimacy is not safe because there are areas of our lives that we just can't let people in. And therefore we're hoping nobody will. And if they make their way in, instead of feeling, wow, I have a true friend. Now, all of a sudden we need to go and cover up mode. Why did you just go in there without asking? Or let me make an excuse for this. And, and there's this problem that all of us uh, are, are dealing with the fact that we are not renewed. We're not fully changed. We live in a world that is not. And so um, what do we do about it? Well, well, part of First Peter is saying you are called out of this into something. So, so in, in verse 11, he says, beloved, that's an important word, beloved. <laughs> Remember how he's addressing us as we're discouraged. Oh, my goodness, I don't have it together. What hope is there? Peter writes to people, he's saying, beloved, I urge you. I urge you. So this is important when he's saying abstain 
from the passions of the flesh. He's not saying, hey, you want to be a nice person? You want to have a better life? He's saying, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, I'm, I'm calling you into a whole different way of life to, to come out of yourself, to come out of this world. Well, wait a second. I'm still me. I still live in this world. Yes. This is not some weird spirituality that, that you're um, captured as some weird soul into this non-physical existence. You're still you. You still live in this world. But God brings life into you and, and wants you to bring that life into this world. So there's an urging to say, you are now an alien. There's something foreign about how you will relate to the world. And, and the foreignness is, is now you've tasted the goodness and you don't want the corruption, but you're still grappling with it. And so, so this new sense of, of going into the world as, as a person where change has begun, trying to bring change rather than to being reconformed to the patterns of the world, uh, it's this real difficult thing. And so all of us are going to have to deal with the, the, the ways that we don't have an ability to deal with all of the problems. And we deal with by covering it up. And he's saying, that's not freedom. Blame is not freedom. Excuses are not freedom. Ignoring is not freedom. He's saying, I urge you, abstain from this and, and grow and be changed so that you can live as people who really are free. I was, I was reading a work by a guy named Francis Spooford. Um, and, and he had an interesting insight. He, he was talking about um, uh, uh, um, an advertising campaign in London. So this, this guy is English. And, and a number of years ago, uh, I don't know if, if for those of you who, who either were Christian at the time or would have been paying attention, but maybe 15 or so years ago, there was this, this growing um, aggressive atheist movement to say, you know what, religion is the ultimate problem in society. And there, a couple of the leaders of that were in England. Um, and so there was this advertising campaign on, in the London metro system, in the bus and in the tube, where there would be these slogans try, trying to, to sort of advocate for atheism in, in, in the in, in in the public space uh, and making making swipes against religion. So, so one of the, the slogans uh, that would appear as buses went by is there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. A little bit whimsical, lighthearted, a little bit of a poke, not highly offensive. Um, Spooford, his insight was interesting. He's saying, you know, as people of faith, you'd think we would get offended that the troubling phrase would be, there's probably no God. He's saying, that's not the troubling thing about this campaign. Probably no God. Well, uh, they would have as much difficulty proving there's no God as we have difficulty proving there is a God. Uh, the challenging things for mature believers should not be that people would say there's probably no God. He thinks that the, the challenging word is not the word probably. But the offensive word is the word enjoy. <laughs> See, the assumption here where it says, now stop worrying and enjoy your life is you have all these things you want to do, but because you have this concept of a deity who will hold you accountable, you're being kept from enjoyment. And so what you need most is don't worry about whether or not God is there, but go and enjoy yourself. He says, that's the problematic thing, not as a challenge to Christianity, but the offensive assumption is that if we got rid of God, what we would have is the ability to act on our desires and enjoy ourselves. His concern is that it's so out of accord with reality. So he starts to give examples of, of people's lifestyles, the drug addict, uh, the trafficked person, the person with severe health issues and disabilities. 
And he's saying, what kind of message for them to say, there's probably no God, just go and enjoy your life. Don't worry. That's not a message for life in this world, because this world is not one that's filled with the possibility for enjoyment. This world is one that's filled with all sorts of things that are ruining your enjoyment. And to say there's probably no God, so enjoy yourself, is taking away the very thing that we need. It's not that the presence of God is getting in the way of your enjoyment, but when you're not enjoying yourself, when you're miserable, is there anyone to help you? Is there any hope that things can be different? Is there any possibility for a different future? And he's saying for a lot of people reading those ads, there's none. And so to come and say, there's probably no God, don't worry about it, enjoy yourself. Don't we want to come and say, well, what about those of you who are not enjoying yourselves? What about those of you who are struggling in the world? Well, there probably is a God, and that's actually hopeful, that you don't have to be alone in this, that you don't have to fix yourself. Um, The troubling word is not probably, the troubling word is enjoy, because it's taking away the possibility of true freedom, of true hope, of true flourishing. And so um, freedom, as we're told Uh, through Jesus Christ, is not getting away from God. We find that the further we've gotten from God, the less free that we are. And that's what a a true examination of our hearts and the ways that we structure the world will show us. But here's the last thing, the third thing that I want to talk about, the principle that is laid down um, in in helping us to understand where we're drawing near to God actually starts to restore things. The third thing I want to talk about is getting honor, love, and fear properly oriented. Honor, love, and fear. And, and, and here's where there's a resetting of relationships that's implied uh, in this passage that then we need to take with us as we look at specific relationships, the emperor, uh, the master, the husband, the, one, the wife. Um, verse 16, live as people who are free. What's counterintuitive And the call to live as people who are free is he says, live as people who are free as servants of God. And maybe our instinct is to say, oh, to be a servant of God is to not be free because being a servant uh, is, is contrary to our concept of freedom. What the Bible is saying is you are a servant. Try to live a good life. Try to um, try not to cooperate with whoever has power in society. (laughs) And then you will all of a sudden find that you're not free. Now you're going to find, if you want to be free from your corrupt desires, if you want to be free from corrupt people, when you become a servant of God, you'll find that you actually begin to experience true freedom. And what he's saying here is, I urge you, uh, live, stay in that freedom, hold to that, become aliens in this world, uh, live differently. And so relationships change. Verse 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, the family of believers. The focus there seems to be on the church. Fear God, honor the emperor. Honor, love, and fear. Um, a short reflection on these three shows that, that, that we're a bit oriented wrong. Um, fear is largely at work. So this idea that um, we, we're all covering up evil. Um, so we have fear of the harmful things that we would do. Imagine we acted on some of our desires, our desire for vengeance, but we also have fear that we'll be seen for who we really are. But being in tune with that, then we fear others because even the person that appears to be moral, we fear that they're holding something back and what are they going to do? And so then in the dynamics and the power relationships of how we navigate this world, fear is 
inherent. You know, there's an article in the New York Times this week about heart disease saying, you know, that the missing piece in all of our studies about what we eat and how much exercise we get is how much uh, our emotions are actually a key contribution to heart disease. And, and, and in the article, it said specifically the amygdala, it described the fear center of the brain then creates the biological contexts and the processes that, that begin to have the, the, the diseases that underlie uh, heart attacks and strokes. That's the argument of, of some of this research. Um, fear is not just in the soul, and then there's the body, but, but we are these embodied soulish people. And what we fear is actually killing us. It's destroying us. It's, it's changing things. The interesting thing, um, you know, there's the emperor and there's the church community. We're told to honor the emperor, to honor all people. We're told to, to love the brethren, the church community. It's important that he doesn't say fear the emperor or fear other people, because those are two kinds of fears, right? There's the power of the sword, fear the, the powerful person that could imprison you, that could find you. There's the social factor, fear in your community. What if they reject you? What if they alienate you? He doesn't say fear the emperor, fear the brotherhood. He says, honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now that's important. What's interesting is God doesn't fear us. We can make God angry. <laughs> uh, we could do things that, that, uh, that maybe trouble God, but, 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 but God doesn't need to fear us. What could we possibly do to God? God doesn't fear us. The remarkable thing about Christianity is, but God loves us. And so this is an interesting thing because who do we honor in the world? Well, we honor those we fear either because we think that they're great and we want to gain from their power or we don't want to upset them where they'll punish us. God doesn't fear us, but he loves us. And in his love for us, he gives us honor. And so now there's a, a rechanging of things. Why would he honor us if we haven't revered him, if we haven't lived honorably? Well, because he loves us. And that's the Christian message. That's the anchor that Peter is talking about. Jesus is sent into the world, the son of God. And what does he come to do? He comes to invite us to God because he loves us. And the way he loves us is by giving up his own honor. So Jesus Christ uh, exposes when he goes to the cross. And what's exposed? Well, the power of the state, the emperor, and the power of religion come against Jesus because he threatens their stability. And so what are we going to do? We're going to hand him over if he doesn't conform to our religious system. And the government is going to kill him if, if this guy is going to cause an upbringing. And so he exposes the systems of this world that we live in terrible fear. We fear that if this guy is right, uh, we're going to lose our religious authority. We fear that if this movement begins, we're going to have trouble in the empire. Jesus comes and exposes that fearful people, when they are tested, will do terrible things. But it also exposes the heart of Jesus when he's tested. What do you see? <laughs> we see uh, the, the more scrutiny you put Jesus under, the more honorable we see that he is. A study of the Gospels and, his, and, and the living Christ in the church. When you look at him, you find the more Jesus loves, the more honorable he is. And yet he goes to the cross, stripped of his clothing and humiliated, removed of all of the honor that's due to him so we could burden our hostilities upon him. We're told God loved us so much that Jesus was dishonored in order to give honor to people who don't deserve it. And that paradigm then is meant to transform fear. 
If God loves us, our fear of him is not fear that if he sees below the surface, he's going to destroy us. But it's an invitation to say, stop dealing with our problems by covering them. But God is going to cover you with honor. And so so let it go. So don't hide your problems. Confront them. (laughs) Don't make excuses for them. Admit them and repent of them. That becomes only possible when you have confidence that the only one we should really fear loves us. And we know he loves us because of the dishonor that he experienced as the consequence of our own sin, that Jesus bears the shame so that people who fear the shame of one day, everything coming out are told he will cover you. Uh, You have honor in Christ. And so now there's a restoring of orders. Don't fear the emperor. Don't fear the religious people. Don't fear the social community. Fear God in in a sense of of reverence. Start to worship the Lord who has loved you. And when you know that he loves you and you start to feel there's now honor, there's dignity, not in who I have been or what my emotional state is or what my desires are, but there's a dignity that comes that God will cover me. I I don't need to go into the world afraid that I'll constantly be shamed. But if God loves me, he will protect me. And so if the world will have consequences for not liking who I am, If God sees and he's okay, well, then I don't need to worry what the world will do. So when Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell, that's real power. The emperor can kill you. Yes, and he might. Now, look, we're not we're not super uh, superheroes. Yes, we will still experience fear, but it puts that fear in perspective to say whatever you fear, there's a limit on what they can do. And that changes things that changes things. So we don't cover up what's wrong with us, but we let go of it. We abstain. We don't let it control us. We don't rationalize or blame our problem uh, or or blame others for our problems, but we admit them and we repent of them. And the outworking of it then becomes that we then can look at people in the world differently. And so verse 12 says, keep your conduct honorable. How do you honor people? (laughs) Um, Well, when you fear them, you honor them because you want them to reward you or you don't want them to punish you. But it creates these hierarchies in society of of who has the ability to punish me or who has the ability to reward me. And those are the people that I will honor. The gospel changes us to say, now you go into the world to be honorable. Um, The honor now is something that comes with this new identity that you have being invited to join with Christ because God has loved you and gave himself for you. Now, Go out and is an honorable person. And what is your joy and privilege? It's to see the honor in people. And so it's interesting. He says, honor people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. After all, the emperor is a person. <laughs> so you honor the person and you, you honor the offices that people hold or the roles they play in society. But those don't necessarily line up. I mean, this was written in the first century. Uh, Peter would not have been a fan of the Roman emperor as a supporter of the church. And yet... You honor the emperor. But here's the thing. Uh, we create these hierarchies of the people that we, we admire because society gives them power and we honor them. And then the people that we don't, that we could ignore. And the Christian is sent back into the world to say, now you honor people. You honor their office. You honor their, their title. You honor their skill in, in an appropriate way. But you don't honor the person because of that. You know, it's this funny thing. So, for example, advocates for the homeless. The strategy is to try to make heroes of them. Because the only way that we could love people from that are different for us from us are if they're heroes. And therefore we need to cover up the fact that maybe there are some problems that we also need to address. 
the gospel makes it possible so that you could look at the president of the United States, but recognize the president's also a flawed human being. And you could look at somebody who lives in the street and you could look at the person who's behind the security desk and you could look at your doctor and you could look at the, the person who watches your kids and you could look at the, the six-year-old in the playground and you could look at all of these people not trying to evaluate whether they're worthy of your honor because of what they do or what role they have or what title they have. But you start to recognize, well, who am I? I'm a humble person. <laughs> um, I have honor now because of what Christ has done. It changes the way you see people. It actually frees us because you don't need to, uh, to honor somebody because they could reward or punish you, but because there is somebody and that's freedom. And and yes, it's, it's, it, it, it flattens society to a certain degree, but, but yeah, there are certain, certain accomplished people that, that have titles that we should rejoice and we should trust them and we should honor them. But that's only possible once our fears have been dealt with, once our shame has been dealt with. And that's the possibility. So as we prepare for the next couple of weeks, if you're going to be with us, as we start to get into the specifics, um, how much is fear controlling you? And and how much of the, in, in light of this first question, how much of, of seeing the greatness of God is going to help you grapple with those fears so they don't control you as much? So you go back into the world and, and you, you, you're attempting to live a free life this way to say, I don't need to fear people. I don't need to fear myself. I don't need to fear consequences. Let me revere God. Let me remember his greatness. Let me remember that he loves me. And therefore, what is the thing that I fear? Let me face it, grounded in that. That's going to be important as we think about citizenship, as we think about employment, as we think about family. But here's something to work on this week. <laughs> work on honoring people. Work on going into the world and saying, you know what? If I'm called to be honorable, one of the ways of being free and being honorable is to encounter every person. And, and my first assumption, my first strategy is to say, there's something valuable in this person. God has created this human being. God wants me to love them. And therefore, I'm not just going to act in a way that's honorable in some sort of exchange way, but I'm in my heart and mind going to recognize I stand before a human being. <laughs> and so I'm going to honor that person. And what does it look like for me to now speak to, to engage, um, to interact with that person? Work on that this week. It's going to be a little bit discouraging at times when you're going to realize, oh, yeah, I actually make some quick judgments. I love the person with the title. I look down at the person who I don't want to waste time with. Practice this week honoring people. And then when we come together next week and talk about, well, what does it mean to honor the emperor or our president or a, or a prime minister? As in the upcoming weeks, what does it look like to, to honor the people that you work with? Um, let's practice it this week. Fear God and nothing else. Work on that. <laughs> honor people. And, uh, and let's see if we can make some progress in the upcoming weeks. Let me pray for us. Our Father, <clears throat> we need help. We're here, and no matter how much you tell us and how much you show us, uh, we are ignorant. We are foolish. There's so much we need to learn. Lord, we don't have the power to change our hearts. We don't have the power to change the world, but you do. And so, Lord, we revere you. We recognize what's unique to you, and we thank you that you're good, that you love us. We thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ shows us an entirely different way, and that there's an honor that we have access to not based on our record, but based on your love and your grace and your favor. Help us to rest in that, to have our fears conquered so that the biases and the foolishness and the ways we engage the world would be overcome so that we can be honorable. Would send us into the world this week with hope 
that um, that something of what you're doing in us would be life-giving, that that living hope would change us as we function in our relationships, in the institutions of our city. Um, Lord, do a work of grace in us, but most of all, forgive us, make us new, welcome us, bear patiently with us, uh, work powerfully by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.